Hey, Three Crosses family. My name is AJ Venegas. I'm the director of Life Groups and Discipleship here at Three Crosses. And today I want to talk to you about how you are more than. As a long-term resident of the East Bay area, I often find myself comparing the culture of my hometown to the cultures of our in-state neighbors. Our cultures do share a lot in common. You know, I just got back from visiting some family in the Midwest, and let me remind all of us listening today that not everyone has the privilege of engaging in year-round outdoor activities. We share an unbelievably favorable climate and location. Now, unfortunately, our housing market reflects that too, but if you've been a resident of the East Bay for any amount of time, you know that the East Bay is just so different from say Los Angeles, the Valley, San Diego, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, the Peninsula, the Tri-Valley, or even the greater Northern Californian region. You know, whenever I do this mental exercise, I'm further drawn to the grit of the East Bay area and its focus on developing tight knit yet diverse communities. I was watching a documentary set in Oakland and it offered this litmus test. If you're able to discern why the Warriors and the Raiders moved out of, quote, the town, and why, well, the Warriors at least, moved to the heart of, quote, the city by the bay, then you're likely feeling these differences between cultures, even though Oakland and San Francisco are just a handful of miles apart. You know, I'll let that burn slowly for you East Bay sports fans out there. But here's the beautifully challenging thing about the Bible. God has sovereignly decided to give us his word through real people, the Israelites, who existed in a real world location, the Mediterranean, during a real time period, thousands of years ago. And so let me state the obvious here. We are well removed from that context. So as a reader of this Bible, this ancient text, you're left with a choice. Will you allow yourself to become curious tourists allowing the text of scripture to guide you into a foreign world? Or will you approach the Bible expecting to find something like In-N-Out Burger or iPhones or something that exists in our modern era? You know, in order to more fully understand what the Bible is trying to communicate to us, it's extremely helpful to let go of our modern sensibilities and get into the shoes of that original audience. What did they hear? What did they think? What did they feel when they heard our key phrase for the series, the image of God? Okay, so how do we do this well? And honestly, the best way is to simply read one of the most well-preserved historical texts of the time period. And that's the Bible itself. And this is what we're going to do. We'll be engaging in this ancient text over the next 30 days. But today, I want to show you one other way that we can do this effectively. In the same way that understanding the culture of our surrounding regions in California illuminates the uniqueness of our own culture here in the East Bay, we can also illuminate the culture of ancient Israel by understanding the similarities and differences of the cultures of the surrounding regions. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Israel copied the thoughts of their neighbors, just like you in the East Bay don't copy the thinking of Los Angeles or San Francisco. But I am saying that there are real crossovers and real departures between cultures because that's just the way humans experience life. 
And when you study what the surrounding world tells us and tells Israel about identity, you'll discover that according to the Bible, you are more than fill in the blank. So what did Israel's neighbors think about identity? The ancient Near East tended to establish identity and purpose through origin stories. What does this all mean? Who are we? Are all questions that can be answered in origin stories. Here's what I mean. According to the popular and oftentimes comparable Mesopotamian creation account titled Enuma Elish, in the beginning there was a god named Tiamat, the goddess of the chaotic saltwater ocean. And she had a husband, Apsu, the god of freshwater. Tiamat and Apsu had several young children who actually quite hilariously grew obnoxious to their parents for being children who simply played loudly all the time. And so Apsu, this god of fresh water, he actually schemed to bring violence on these children while Tiamat, this goddess of the salt water, attempted to restrain him from being violent. But it turns out that one of their children caught wind of Apsu's violent plan. He then killed Apsu and built a temple on that location of the deed. This murderous child gave birth to the famous younger god named Marduk. But now the wimful playing of this young god Marduk began to drove Tiamat angry. What a temperamental first couple, right? Tiamat leads an army to destroy all of these obnoxious young gods who, after several failed attempts to fend off Tiamat, they name Marduk their warrior, setting up the great battle between Marduk and Tiamat. Marduk actually eventually defeats Tiamat and earns the right to be the supreme god. So he builds Babylon to be his capital. And then he proceeds to, to fashion different works of art. He splits Tiamat's body in half, one half to design the heavenly realms and the other half as material to sculpt the earth, which includes you, human being listener. So if we were to subscribe to the identity given to us by the origin stories that came from the surrounding neighbors of Israel, here's who you would be. You would be born out of a story of tremendous violence created out of Tiamat's dead carcass, animated by the sacrificial blood of a god, destined for replicating what Marduk did and building for his glory. But wait, there is in fact more to this story. There's a famous Mesopotamian proverb that reads, the king lives in the shadow of God and mankind lives in the shadow of the king. It's no coincidence then that when we look at the literature and artifacts of the ancient Near East, archaeologists have found 18 different pharaohs and six different Mesopotamian kings and priestly officials who possess the inscription of image and likeness of God. This can only tell us that the image of God wasn't a new concept, but in fact, Israel's neighbors were famous for placing, quote, images of gods in temples or conquered cities, places where the king might have been absent to remind the people of the shadow of the god, the king. In other words, these statues memorialized the king in that place. They reminded the community of his ultimate authority and they brought glory to the king's recognized god. The king 
and the god were attached, leading those 18 pharaohs and six sets of kings and cultic priests to claim that they were, quote, the image of God. They were the divine mediators of his blessing. So this leaves us to wonder, where are us ordinary, non-royal folks? In tablet one of what is known as the Mesopotamian Atrahasis epic, the state of the gods is described like this. When gods were men, they did forced labor. They bore drudgery. Great indeed was the drudgery of the gods. The forced labor was heavy, the misery too much. The seven great Anuna gods were burdening the Igigi gods with forced labor. I know the gods' names kind of get confusing. But beyond the confusing names of these gods, we see that these gods were, were burdened with the drudgery of forced labor. So what was the solution? The solution was to create the human being. Quote, that he may bear the yoke. Let him, the human, bear the yoke, the task of gods. Let man assume the drudgery of the god. So the gods made man out of clay, combined yet again with the blood of a slaughtered god. The pantheon of gods proceed to praise this work, saying, quote, I have done away with your heavy forced labor. I have imposed your drudgery on man. This text goes on to describe what that task looks like. It says, they made new hoes and shovels. They built the big canal banks for food for the peoples, for the maintenance of the gods. The epic continues with a flood, not for the wickedness of humanity, but the overpopulation of these human workers. But it wasn't until the gods, quote, were sitting in thirst and hunger, end quote, that they saved Atrahasis to continue the sacrifice to the gods. So I know this is confusing. Let's take a step back from all of these crazy wild names of the gods for a second and ask our question, who are you? If you were living during the times of ancient Israel, you would be tempted to think of yourself as nothing more than a product of violent gods. You'd be tempted to think that you were nothing more than clay brought to life by the spilt blood of a god designed to appease them. You'd be tempted to think you're nothing more than a deformed, imperfect being who is subservient to the will of these violent gods. You'd be praying that the king who is the exclusive image bearer of God would not rule with tyranny. And so while the kings enjoyed status as the image of God, the immense power to mediate God's presence wherever the king went and speak things into existence simply by his decrees, you non-royal folk were created to do nothing more than to alleviate the gods with manual labor so that they could, quote, relax from their toil. You were created, quote, to benefit the house of the great gods, divert water to the great residents, and celebrate worthily day and night the feasts of the gods. And who knows, maybe the gods will get annoyed with you and wipe you out one day with a worldwide flood. And that's why in this series, when we come to the biblical narrative of the origin story of all things and the biblical use of the phrase, quote, the image of God, we learn that we are more than any identity that this world has to offer. You, in fact, are more than 